our email marketing strategy looks ridiculously simple, as you said. It looks like just one guy writing casual stories and emails and hitting send and just messing about. But that strategy drives millions of dollars of revenue. So every, every year, that is really the engine and the powerhouse behind our business. We have very high value clients. So client works with us. They, could, they might spend $50,000, $100,000 over their lifetime with us, or they might spend a few hundred dollars with us either way. But either way, our email is our workhorse. So we mail often. We never miss mailing in a week. So we, we usually mail two to three times a week. We're experimenting with different cadences. At the moment, we're pulling back a little bit, testing two times a week. The point is, I want people to feel like this is an email from their friend and that they will feel comfortable just hitting reply. And many people do. Many people hit reply to my emails and I love seeing the feedback. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the actionable, no-fluff marketing podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. I last interviewed my guest today five years ago, which is crazy when you think about it. It's been a very popular episode and still very timely, still very evergreen. I'm very proud of it. My guest is the author of the one page marketing plan, which has been on the Amazon top list in the marketing category for fucking years. It's crazy. I think it sold more than 200,000 copies, probably more since then. And the person who wrote it also launched a business on the back of it called SuccessWise. They offer coaching, certification, and an ongoing program as well. My guest has been an inspiration. And to me, he doesn't know it, but I'll let him know now. As he was building the business, always interesting to reverse engineer the business model he's been using, using your book as a lead magnet as well. I also love the way you write emails that are extremely simple, conversational. It feels like you're sending it to me only. There's no templates. I like that as well. I got inspired by that. Anyway, Alan Dib, welcome back. Hey, Louis. So good to be back on. All right. Uh, very slight Thank correction you. about the book sales. It's over half a million at the moment. But and yeah, there you go. You see, very fast. <laughs> I knew, I knew it was way. I was labeling it. So like more than half a million. And to some who are used to seeing big numbers, used to seeing thirty-five million YouTube views per video, those kind of big, big numbers where you feel it's yeah. almost normal. What you've achieved with a book, a non-fiction book, is extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. It, like, no one really gets those figures selling books. Let's be completely honest here, right? Yeah, definitely. Look, the book business is very, very different to a YouTube view. It's relatively easy to get, but you think about it, a book, it's like a five, six hour commitment for someone at least. Book readers are smaller numbers, especially in not fiction, as you said. So let's go back in time. In 2016, you publish the one-page marketing plan, right? Yes. Why? I built the one-page marketing plan as a process for my clients. I was consulting with clients. And one of the things that had helped me in the past is put together a marketing plan. And of course, I got a lot of pushback from clients. It's too hard. Don't know where to start. I need to hire a consultant. They'll procrastinate, all of this sort of thing. So by necessity, I created a process where literally in a single page, we could create a marketing plan. And so a marketing plan that was a living document, that wasn't something that you put in the top drawer and forget about and it's 75 pages long and you don't know, you got Excel projections and all of this crap, right? So stuff that you never will ever look at it again. 
I want to document that's a living document, meaning that if I get better information, more information, if I need to share it with my web developer, if I need to share it with my team, I have a new team member starting or I have a new copywriter starting, I show them, hey, this is my marketing plan, literally one page. So this is our target market. This is our messaging. This is how we reach our target market, all of those sorts of things. And then importantly, as we get better and more information, we can update it. We can keep it up to date. So for example, if I'm talking to a client and I'm always paying attention, what's landing with my audience? Meaning if I send an email out, which ones get the most positive replies, the most opens? If I'm talking to a client, I watch for, wow, that message really landed. Their head is nodding. And I look for patterns like that. So as we go and we update our own marketing plan as we go as well. So it's a living document, something that we can update at any time. We can share it easily. We've all got access to it. And it's not some weird, long document that nobody understands or ever looks at. So that's where the one-page marketing plan really started. That's the beginning. And I started using that just as a tool for my clients. It was incredibly successful with those clients because for the first time, many of them had a plan. They never ever in the history of their business ever had a marketing plan, many of them. And so we were able to get clients had a plan. So I wrote a book because I just wanted to get that out to a much larger audience. I thought a lot of people could benefit from that. And was it part of your grandiose plan to use the book as a, a this gigantic lead magnet and it became? It was definitely part of the plan because I think if you're a thought leader, if you're in the information business, if you're in the business of transforming someone from a worse place to a better place, I think a book is one of the best positioning tools you can have. So I speak at events from time to time, and it would be very, very rare for one of the speakers to not have a book or have many books published. It's a tool that can really help position you as an expert. It's a tool that opens a lot of doors. It creates inbound lead flow. I call it the nuclear weapon of business cards. You have an interesting view about marketing that most people wouldn't share. You talk about why business owners and folks doing marketing should do less marketing. That kind of goes against what most people say, right? You need to be everywhere and do all of those things. And yeah. So why, why do you say that? I think now more and more every single day we're told do more, do, do it more often, be on every platform, all of that sort of stuff. And look, I'm not opposed to doing more, but the overwhelm for most people is enough to just shut down. I don't know about you, but if I've got a hundred things to do on my to-do list that day, I get none done, right? And if I have two or three done, I usually get two or three and get it, get them all done. And so I think that's the same with a lot of people when it comes to marketing. And look, I'm now a quote unquote professional marketer. The list of things I don't do is far, far bigger than the list of things I do do. Really. The things that I do is write. I appear on podcasts as a guest. I don't even have my own podcast yet. I will one day. I haven't got there yet. I'm a little, little active on social media, not really, just more for fun than anything else. But the things that I do are devastatingly effective. We've built a multi-million dollar enterprise just of doing two or three things really, really well. And then as we build the business, as we build the team, as we build the capability, we add more and more. But if we were to do 20 things at a time, we would just spread our capability and we would diffuse our focus and it just wouldn't work. And that's such an interesting point that most people forget. When you look at the white space, what people are not doing, what you're not doing is always bigger than what you're doing. So I want to deep dive into that, that you just mentioned, the two to three things that you do extremely well 
But I just want to touch on that point of there's a cognitive bias appearing that we are all subject to, which is the fact that when something seems complex and quite difficult to get to, it tends to be the favorite solution because it is complex and it sounds smart. So therefore we want to do it over simply, simply publishing a book, having an email list and selling the fuck out of it, right? Just to overly simplify the thing. So we tend to favor that because we think we are smarter and, and whatever. But yeah, the sim in marketing, like in life in general, like the simplest stuff usually works the best. Yeah. So as I said, look, really, if you want to get strong, and I think it's been five years since you last saw me. I think last time you saw me, I was a lot fatter. I was a lot weaker. I learned that really to get strong, it's three or four basic movements in the gym. It's, we don't have to do a hundred different things. I don't have to stand on my head or whatever. I do a deadlift. I do a squat. I do a bench press. I do a row and that's enough. Do those over and over daily, weekly, monthly, and you're going to get strong. You don't have to do anything crazy. You don't have to do 10,000 different movements, all of that sort of stuff. And I find that the same thing when it comes to marketing is really there's two, three, four, five moves that are going to make the biggest difference. That's such a good analogy. I too was a bit fatter. I too went to personal trainer and learned a lot. I haven't been since I had my daughter, but I remembered a few things about diet and stuff like that. So I didn't blow up again. And it's such a good analogy because on YouTube, for example, you can see like all the fancy new exercise and shit like that. Yeah. Fuck that, right? As exactly <laughs> as you said, bench press, squat, deadlift, maybe a bit of biceps and stuff like that because we are men and we like to look at our biceps, but maybe a bit of back as well. But that's it, right? And the simpler solution is usually the best. So you talked about, you just said it. There's four to five moves you can make and that's it. Now, what I want to learn from you is from your own experience, because you've been an entrepreneur before, success-wise is not your first baby. What moves did you make? And maybe trying to extract some of the first principles that folks listening and watching can take from you. So obviously they don't want to copy you. You have your own story, your knowledge. We can't copy that. But maybe the principles behind it would work. Okay. So you had this plan of creating that book. You knew that it would be used as a kind of a positioning tool. You knew that it was something that would be part of a bigger plan. Yes. I remember. When you wrote it and published it, did you have a team then or did you start on your own? No, I started on my own. I had an assistant, but she was just a bit of a part-time assistant. That was it. Not a very big team. I was mainly just consulting on my own. The business was growing and really I had actually never anticipated to grow this as a real business. I was just I'd already done very well from my past few businesses. And this was really just a lifestyle business. So I thought every now and then I'll, I'll write a book. I'll talk to a few clients here and there. But as things go, it really grew. I've now got a decent sized team and we have a lot of clients and we work with people all over the world. As it goes, generally, it's very hard as an entrepreneur to keep a business small. So especially as you get more and more demand. So it's been a really cool journey. I've enjoyed it. How many people is in your team now? In my team, I think we just hired our 13th person. So it's still a small, still a small team. But yeah, I have the feeling looking at your website and everything you do that it's, you definitely keep a tight ship and you know what you're doing. So 13 people, I would have thought way more. So that's a, always a good sign. Okay. You published that book. You were on your own. You didn't think much of it. What happened next? Well, I didn't think much of it. I always thought it was a really good book, but yeah. And I actually didn't know anything about book rankings, all of this sort of stuff. And so there was a guy at the time who helped me typeset it and upload it to Amazon and all of this sort of stuff. What I wanted is to be able to say, hey, it's a best-selling book or whatever. I was saying, 
like, where do I check the ranking of the book and all of this sort of stuff? And he said, you're number one in your category. You're already a bestseller. And I'm like, what? This was like the second day it was out or something like that. So it was an instant hit. And I think from a launch, it was great, right? And many books hit the bestseller list in the launch week and all of that sort of stuff. Very, very common. Happens all the time. But to write a perennial bestseller, a book that sells over and over, over many years, that's definitely much harder. And I think that's where you've got to, like you can probably push and propel a book to number one just through force of will by getting on lots of podcasts, by promoting it, by running ads, all of that sort of thing. But to create a perennial bestseller, your readers really have to love it, refer it to other people. Every single day I get email from people who say, hey, loved your book. I referred it to my friend, to my colleague, to my brother, to my sister, to this guy who's running a business or whatever. And Books aside, because a lot of people listening may not want to write a book, may never write a book, I think of the book as a product, right? If you sell a product and you can create one client that creates two clients, that creates three clients, that creates four clients, you suddenly don't have a growth problem, right? You'll really build that inbound marketing machine much, much faster and much, much easier. So what you want to do is really make something that people really want to refer other people to, that people love and all of that sort of thing. And that's part of marketing. So many people forget or confuse marketing with advertising, with branding or whatever. And they think marketing is just the part where you talk to people about your product. No, marketing is also the product. And I think you've done a very, very good job from the start to think about it as a product to get people on your list. So almost at every chapter, you mention templates and stuff that people can get so that you can grow your email list, right? So how many subscribers you have right now? We've got about 50,000 subscribers on the email list. Yeah. And I'm on it. And what I like about it is really the casual tone on the template. So I really encourage anyone to sign up just to reverse engineer the way you do things. Because if you go, I'm just looking at it on my phone. If you go to like, for example, you have, uh, does your email marketing suck? There's nothing else. That's just a subject line. And then you can see your face and straight away after there is a sentence, right? There is no logo, there's fuck all. It's ever tried something only to find out it was much harder than it looked, blah, blah, blah. And then you talk in the first person. Right? I was on TikTok the other day. It's very casual, straight driven. And then there's a little call to action at the end that says crush your email marketing here. And then a signature. So it feels personal. It feels like you're sending it just to me. And it's one of those things I think that seems easy from the outside. Oh, die! you know, it's just use a simple <laughs> template and whatever. But I can tell how much work you're putting into every single one of them. So maybe can you tell me more about that? And then maybe we'll try to look at principles that people can apply after that. Our email marketing strategy looks ridiculously simple, as you said. It looks like just one guy writing casual stories and emails and hitting send and just messing about. But that strategy drives millions of dollars of revenue. So every every year, that is really the engine and the powerhouse behind our business. We have very high value clients. So client works with us. They could, they might spend fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars over their lifetime with us, or they might spend a few hundred dollars with us. Either way, but either way, our email is our workhorse. So we mail often. We never miss mailing in a week. So we, we usually mail two to three times a week. We're experimenting with different cadences. At the moment, we're pulling back a little bit, testing two times a week. 
One thing that we're going to test soon is longer format emails. So currently it's been mostly pretty short form emails, but we're going to test some longer form emails. But the point is I want people to feel like this is an email from their friend and that they will feel comfortable just hitting reply. And many people do. Many people hit reply to my emails and I love seeing the feedback. Some people, sometimes it's angry feedback, believe it or not. Sometimes it most commonly it's appreciative or helpful feedback. A lot of times people are like, hey, how could I work with you and your team more? We want to create conversations. So the point of those emails is to, first of all, bring a lot of value to the subscribers, even if no one ever buys from us and the vast majority never spend a single cent with us. That's totally fine. We want to bring value to those people because, again, they may not be our direct client, but someone they know, someone they refer, someone whatever. A lot of paths lead to the same place. So we want to bring a lot of value to people. But we also want people to be aware of some of the ways that we can work with them, some of the ways that we can help them further. So we have a little signature block at the end of emails, and that drives a lot of revenue. Also, replies. So we encourage people to reply. So how many times I see email newsletters from someone sending sales at or no reply at or whatever. And I'm like, why would you not want someone to reply to your emails? Like it's like drives me nuts. (laughs) It's like having a store and then shutting the front door. Like uh, it's insanity. (laughs) So from those replies, again, they may ask a question, they may want to know more, whatever, and I'll connect them with someone in my team. And often that may lead to a sale if they're a good fit. So at the moment, your signature, the blog you're talking about says, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you grow your business. So get personal help with a free strategy call, take the one page marketing plan course, get help implementing your one page marketing plan. I'm using a very similar strategy on my list. I have about 12,000 subscribers. I send email every day, every work day. And yeah, it's just, it's just, having an email list is just I hope it will never change. I hope the email will always be that kind of technology that no one owns and that we can rely on because it's such a blessing to have an algorithm-free way to reach people who want to hear from you, isn't it? It is. And in my new book, I talk about this a little bit because every year we get these stupid articles that say email is dead, email doesn't work anymore, all of this sort of stuff. And yet it's been the workhorse for the last 30, 40 years. And I think it's subject to, I think, what Nassim Taleb calls the Lindy effect. The Lindy effect is the longer something has been around, the more likely it's going to be around. So if something's been around for 50 years, it's likely it will be around for another 50 years. I think email's very much subject to that Lindy effect. So it's been around for a long time. It's on everybody's phone. It's what people check many, many times every single day. And I think that's going to be around for a long, long time. It may be in different forms. We may have Gmail was a big innovation, and then there was a few different ways of labeling it and all of that sort of thing. Slack was supposed to disrupt it, but it didn't really. It just added to it, I think. So I think it's going to be around for a long time. So let's try to extract some first principles for people listening about what you say so far. And let's try to imagine, it's not difficult for you because if you do that for a job, let's try to imagine that we're working with someone who might have a small team or own their own solo business or small business owner selling you can pick whatever you want and they want to emulate you or they feel like, you know, shit tone about business. They want to hear like the best bit, the things that will work for them if they apply it. So what do you say? I'll say this. And like a lot of my stuff, I'm going to keep it super, super simple. So a lot of people try to overcomplicate marketing with a lot of hype. I would say is just be really helpful. 
like your marketing is part of your product. So a lot of people think that marketing is something that we add at the end or we use it to sell our product or we try and interrupt people and try to get them to buy our product. Your marketing is part of your product. So you'll see that the people who are most successful on emerging platforms other than email, like TikTok, Instagram, all of these sorts of platforms, are the people who are genuinely helpful, who create interesting content, educational content, inspiring content. So if you can treat your marketing as part of your product, and it may be a product that's priced for free, but it's still a product. So meaning that we want to bring genuine value and people maybe are not paying with their money, but they're paying with their attention, which is valuable, right? So treat it as your product. So what would you do if you were trying to be genuinely helpful to someone in your target market, if you weren't just trying to sell them today? Because what we know is that only a very small percentage of people are ready to buy today. If we separate all of your potential prospects in your target market, Maybe about 3% are ready to buy today and everybody's fighting for those people. Everyone's running ads, everyone's cold calling them, everyone's trying to get them in the door, all of those things. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can target those people too. But there's a much, much, much larger pool of prospects who are ready to buy sometime in the future, maybe 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, a year, two years time. So many times someone has said to me, Alan, I'm ready for coaching. I've been on your email list for a year and a half or whatever. I'm ready now. And so if a year and a half ago, I didn't have a way to bring value to them, to keep in touch with them, to keep top of mind, they would have forgotten about me 10 times over, right? Anyone knows how to keep in touch with a prospect who's ready to buy today. You don't need to be very sophisticated for that. But it takes a more sophisticated marketer to think about prospects who are ready down the track, whenever down the track is, it might be three months, six months, a year, whatever it is. And so you build this huge pipeline of goodwill. And so I think of goodwill like deposits in a bank account. If Most people are trying to do withdrawals all the time. They're promoting their stuff, interrupting people, all of this, and they get overdrawn, which is why a lot of people hate marketers, right? Because this is someone who's continually taking. But what we want to do is we want to do mostly deposits and take sometimes. That's such a good way to see it because that's exactly how it works. It's like a trust bank as well, where you want to be trusted. You first need to give, give, give. I always say when you're in doubt, if you are like struggling with the business, you don't know where to do next, always give first, right? Don't think about taking anything. Just give, give, give. So let's avoid the buzzwords of providing value and let's get deeper into that specific concept, right? So maybe looking at you as an example. Everyone says, ah, you need to provide value, duh, right? You need to be helpful, duh. Quite obvious. So when you said you need to be a more sophisticated marketer to think about it this way, what would you say if we go one level deeper? Well, let's maybe define what providing value is. Can we give someone a result in advance, basically? So for example, uh, about three years ago, I had a midlife crisis, started to get fit, started to change a lot of things. And so... Prior to that point, I had absolutely zero interest in fitness. You could have paid me a million dollars. I wouldn't have entered a gym. I couldn't care less. I didn't want to know about it. It had zero value to me whatsoever. So the price was irrelevant. The Whatever discount you wanted to give me was completely irrelevant. I had zero interest. Now I have a lot of interest. There's the old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will arrive. And so I think we can change that a little bit and say, hey, 
when the customer is ready, they will arrive or when the prospect is ready, the customer will arrive or however you want to phrase that. So what we want to do is we want to be genuinely helpful, help take someone from a worse condition to a better condition. So for me, I look up now, I'll look up some question on YouTube or on Google or whatever, and I will often buy a fitness product or fitness related program or app or whatever else, right? Because that's something that interests me a lot. I spend a lot of money on it now. I spend a lot of attention on it. If you had contacted me at a time that I had zero interest in this, it just wouldn't have worked. But you want to find someone when they're ready to buy, when it's something top of mind for them, when it's a big problem for them and you want to help them get a solution. The way I'm thinking about it visually is really the series of checkpoints, very much like in a race running a marathon, and where so many are thinking of trying to bring them all the way to the finish line straight away. All you need to do is just help them go to 500 meters and then 1K, 2K. So it's like, don't try to boil the ocean. Don't try to be this kind of overbearing God who's trying to do everything at once. People will value you and think of you pretty well if you help them just go from zero to 500 meters. Yeah. And the other thing I I would say is, People really go very broad. So they're like, look, I'm going to help everyone. I'm going to be their accountant for, you know, who's my target market? Everyone. And it feels natural because it feels like, hey, if I cast my net wide, I'll get more people. But now more than ever, even when you think you've niched, I think that you can go even more narrow. And I think that's super, super powerful when people go for a narrow niche. Like this guy I follow on TikTok is an accountant but he's positioned himself as the crypto accountant. So if you trade crypto or whatever, that sort of thing, he's your accountant, right? And he talks about how to do tax with Bitcoin, blah, 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 all of that sort of stuff. Realistically, the accounting part is exactly the same as with any other asset, right? So there's nothing really that different, but he's positioned himself as the crypto accountant. And I think that's really powerful. So when you take one thing, you combine it with another and you merge it and you can almost create a category of one or a category of very, very few, which is super, super powerful. That's something I wanted to ask you about, which I'm very curious about in your business, because from the outside in, to me, your niche is extremely broad, right? So your audience descriptor would really be about small business owners. That's millions and millions across the world, right? And then in terms of what you help them to do, you talk about marketing in general as well. So the way I see it visually is like this kind of, the it's a massive fucking square. It's not a thin line. So tell me more about this. And does it go against the advice of niching down or do you have a very tight positioning that is hidden in plain sight? No, so we do have some pretty tight positioning. There's a few different ways to think about niching. And in fact, I'll bring it up here. It's from my current book that I'm writing. And so I'll share a couple of ways that you can niche. So the way most people think about niching is vertically. I'm going to be the guy who does marketing for dentists, or I'm going to be the guy who does marketing for accountants or whatever. And that's totally fine. But I think of niching in a multidimensional way. So here's a few different ways you can niche. You can niche by location or geography, right? You can, for example, you can say, I'm going to target people in San Diego or Australia or Berlin or Paris or whatever. You can target people by demographics. For example, you can say, look, I'm going to target baby boomers or women or British expats or whatever. You can target people by shared values. For example, people who are into philanthropy or maybe they share some kind of faith or they're 
concerned about the environment or something like that. Then there's vertical niching, which we've discussed already by industry. For example, I'm going to target dental or legal or IT services or whatever. Then another way to niche is by desire. For example, people who want to write a book or people who want to import products from China or people who want to apply for a government grant. And then another way is by problem. So maybe people who suffer from anxiety or people who need accountability or people who have low energy or whatever. And then finally by trend, for example, crypto or medical cannabis or artificial intelligence or whatever. Now, here's where a sophisticated marketer comes in. They usually have a multi-dimensional niche. So they might say, look, I'm going to target people in this geography and this industry or this problem or this desire or this demographic. From the outside, like you said, it looks like, hey, we just do marketing and marketing's for everyone. But if you saw our one-page marketing plan, you'll see that it's like you will recognize who is one of our clients and it's very, very specific, especially for our coaching program. It's very, very tight. And so we niche sometimes vertically, sometimes horizontally, and sometimes a combination of those ways. And to me, this is where the tension comes in between, to use a bit of lingo, between your top of the funnel where you want to talk to a lot of people because they might not be interested in your stuff, but as you said before, they might know someone, they might know they have a friend or whatever. And the other side, which is getting clients for your coaching, right? And so I always find that very interesting. And I always find that the best marketers know how to handle that tension well, where they're okay with doing something that is quite broad appeal, but that they know that at the other end, they'll be able to really filter out the ones who, who are the greatest fit. Does it... Totally. Makes sense to you? Of course, of course. You don't know who's on the other end. And as you say, the top of the funnel is a little bit more broad. But as we know, we've got the signals of high value clients. Like a high value client will have a very different response to someone who is just wasting time or whatever. I don't want anyone to feel like they can't reply or whatever, that sort of thing. But there are product classes and there are different buckets that we have people in based on their behavior, most of all. So not necessarily targeting a specific vertical niche, but we know based on behavior, based on a reply, based on a click, based on how we've segmented them. So that makes all the difference. And so that's, I think, more powerful than necessarily just putting them into one big bucket. This way, we know what they want because we know how they have behaved and how they have interacted with some of our content. How would you define your best customer then, based on all of this? Some of our best clients are people who are just doing what I call normal businesses, in quote marks. So people who are doing in construction or in medical or whatever. They're generally not people who are like in Silicon Valley doing some tech startup, whatever, that sort of stuff. It's usually the business owner who's responsible for the business growth. They're usually doing a million to 20 million in revenue. So they're our ideal consulting kind of client because they've got a business that works. So they're getting revenue, they're getting clients, they're getting all of that sort of thing. But the growth has mostly been on the back of the founder or one key person in the business. And so that key person is usually such a good salesperson, knows how to sell a product or whatever, but very, very difficult for them to scale because they're only one person. And if they stop working, the leads stop coming in, the all of those sorts of things. So 
generally, we get a lot of people who've been running a business for a long time. Some of them are baby boomers. Maybe they're thinking about retirement in a few years' time. They're thinking, and a lot of times their kids are not wanting to take over the business. Maybe they're manufacturing screws or something like that. And the son or daughter is went to law school. They have no interest in running this boring business, right? They got a law practice or they're a doctor or whatever, that sort of thing. And so now they're thinking, okay, what am I going to do with this business? I need to maybe exit in a few years and I don't really have a good plan. And the business is very dependent on me and I don't really have a good machine to bring in leads. I think from my description, you're starting to see a bit of a picture of who some of our ideal clients. Now, that's what I say is an ideal client. There are people who are in the tech business who work with us. There are people who are doing less than a million in revenue. So there are people at their edges, but they're the people who are we really actively going after because we know they've got a business that works. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel, trying to figure out, will this launch? Will anyone want this? All of this sort of stuff. They're already doing something that people want. It's already working. It's just not really what we need to do is we need to put some fire under this business. I love asking that question because it always shows marketers like you are like very, very talented, are able to really describe a customer for ever almost, right? Behavioral, <laughs> psychological, demographically. It's just, I love that answer because it explains how deep you are going without making it obvious. When you read your emails, when you read your homepage or whatever, it's not obvious that it's specifically for them. But the way you write about it, the level at which you write, everything is for them. Those people are not marketing gurus. So therefore, your language is extremely simple when it comes to explaining yes. marketing. It's much better to go from nothing to a one-page marketing plan. And so that makes complete sense. So I love that. Going back to your story. So 2016, the book, it's a bestseller. You didn't really expect it to be a bestseller. You were proud of it, but you didn't know it would be that. Yeah. What was your next big move? I don't think I've had any big moves. I've had just small moves over a long period of time. Well, not a long period of time, over five years. Seems like a long time now. It is long. But the, really, all along the way, I'm trying to figure out how do I buy back my time? And literally, I'm reading a book at the moment by my friend Dan Martell called Buy Back Your Time, right? One of the things that he says there is hire people to buy back your time, not to grow your business, which is kind of an interesting little twist where a lot of people feel like, hey, I've got to hire people to grow my business. But if you free up your time and work on the higher leverage things, your business will grow as a result. So more and more, I'm trying to figure out from five years ago to literally right now is how do I buy back my time so I'm working on the most impactful stuff in my business? So that requires you to quantify what's an hour of my time worth and then once you have that figure, then figuring out, look, anything below that is just ridiculous for me to spend my time on. It's costing me money. So as an example, I think it was Brian Tracy who said, I'll butcher this, but he said something like, as I got wealthier, there were many things that I couldn't afford to do, right? Like mowing my lawn, cleaning my house, all of this sort of stuff. This becomes like, if your time is worth a thousand dollars an hour based on your income or based on whatever, then it's insane to mow the lawn. It's insane to clean your house. It's insane to do all of those things. The only caveat is unless that's relaxing to you or something that you enjoy doing or whatever, right? If gardening is something that gives you peace and joy and all of that, absolutely go mow your lawn, garden, whatever. But if it's a chore, if it's something that you don't like to do, then it's crazy. And so this applies to 
both your personal life and especially your professional life. I'm a tech guy, right? From my background was my tech. And in the beginning, I built the website, I set it up, I did the WordPress, I did all of the plugins, all of that sort of stuff. And so it's hard to sometimes let go, but it's insane for me to be managing the website, updating plugins, doing all of this sort of stuff. So now I've got people who do that for me. And sometimes it's like, ah, no, you did it the wrong way or whatever. But you've got to do that. You've got to free up your time so that you're working on high leverage stuff. And so today, really, the only thing I work on at the moment is the next book and content. So really the email newsletters. And occasionally I'll jump on a call with a client, but mostly everything else is done by my team, including the management of my team. I don't even manage my team. I hired a CEO She manages the whole team. And so I really have a one hour meeting with her once a week. And so I don't do meetings. I don't do team management. I don't do performance management. I don't do all of this other stuff. So as much as possible, I'm trying to figure out how do I buy back my time, both personally and professionally. How much is an hour of your time worth? I put it at $5,000 an hour. That's the figure that I use to make a decision whether something is worth my time or not worth my time. That's the figure I basically... When it comes to... So you said it's not a big swing, it's a series of swings, but your focus was always buying back your time. And I got so jealous. I remember the email. I read almost all your emails because I really like your tone and I've, I've really got inspired by it. I got so jealous when you said I've hired a fucking a CEO, so I don't do all of this. I'm like, fuck, that sounds delightful. Now there's other ways to do it, buying back your time. In today's world, we're recording this episode in 2023, generative AI is blowing up in so many different ways. And so you can buy back your time by also setting up automation and creating things like workflows that go faster, right? So you don't necessarily have to buy back your time by hiring people. There's other ways, right? Absolutely. First of all, number one is, can you delete it? There's a lot of things we're doing and even things that I sometimes catch myself doing. I'm like, really, no one should be doing this. No one in my team should be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. We just get rid of this. So number one is delete it. Number two is automate it. Can we do this with a Zapier, Zap, or a automation or some workflow in our CRM or whatever? So can we take the human out of the equation? And then third is delegate it. Okay, great. We need a human to do this. So who in our team can do this or who can we hire or who can we have do this. I protect my time very, very carefully. I plan it. Like one of the things I started doing this year, I heard the lawyers and doctors do this where they track their, they bill their time in 15 minute increments. And I thought, look, based on my income, I actually make more than a doctor or a lawyer. If they tracking their time in 15 minute increments, I should be doing that too. And that's exactly what I've started doing in my calendar. So I know exactly how many hours I spent last week with my wife, how many hours I spent working out, how many hours I spent eating lunch, eating dinner. It sounds like it's a very, very difficult thing to track, but it's actually become second nature and it takes one second to just enter in your calendar what you're doing and when you're doing it. And so I track all my waking hours because I want to know from the metrics, what did I spend last week on? Like, I didn't write anything for my new book. What happened? Where did I spend all my time last week? And so I can go back and have a look. Is your wife happy about you tracking every minute with her? Unless you feel like you're, she's just. I'm not sitting there. Her. I'm not sitting there timing her. You're like with your but, iPhone and like, okay, that's been 15 minutes. Sorry, I need to <laughs> <wait for laughs> I'll send you a bill. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I'm not doing that at all. So it's really retroactive. It's like when I move to my next task, so after I finish this podcast, I'll just put in my calendar the time that you and I spent, and that's in a category which I call performance. So whether I'm speaking or whether I'm on a podcast or doing that, that's essentially performance. And so I can have a look, how much time did I spend performing last week? How much time did I spend on meetings last week? All that sort of stuff. So this does not drive my life. This is just documenting some of what's going on in my life. I was being cheeky. (laughs) So you're obsessed about buying back your time. How did you get then how did you know that this could actually become a big business? Because one of your goals when you created it was to work less than 30 hours a week and not having to wear a suit and stuff like that. So how did you know that actually, yeah, that could be the thing I do 100% of the time? It's not like I woke up one day and just figure that out. It's just you learn that as you go because you have 24 hours in a day like everybody. I have 24 hours in a day. You have 24 hours in a day as far as I know. As far as I know, Elon Musk has 24 hours in a day. So yes. a big theme of my books is the word leverage. So leverage means we get more output for the same input. We put this input in and we get more than the input out. So how can we get that leverage? And so Some of the things, particularly from a marketing perspective, is really three major, what I call force multipliers. There's tools, CRM, automation, all of that sort of thing, assets. So the reason you and I are talking right now is because of an asset I have called the One Page Marketing Plan book. And so it's a reason I get a lot of lead flow, a lot of invitations to speak, because I built this asset that creates leverage. And then finally, processes. Processes is just the secret weapon. It's how you win at the game of marketing. But more than that, it's how you win at the game of life. How do you get fit? How do you have a good relationship? How do you get more clients and more lead flow and more revenue? It's by doing the daily, weekly, monthly stuff. If I spend an hour with my wife a year and then ignore her for the rest of the year, probably I'm not going to be married very long, right? If I work out once a year, I'm probably not going to be very fit. If I send a marketing campaign once a year, probably I'm not going to get much customers or lead flow. So really, all the gains in life that we get from compound interest, whether you're looking at financial, relationship, marketing, fitness, health, whatever else, it all comes from the daily, weekly, monthly compound interest that we get from what we do, the reps that we do. So super important. How did you get those first clients in for that success-wise business. You were already consulting, but what was the next thing after that? What processes, what systems did you put in place to start building that machine? Yeah, the most important one was the email marketing. So where I started treating email as a two-way mechanism, a lot of people treat it like a broadcast mechanism. And even when I had not many subscribers on my email list, people would still reply. We would get into conversations. I think I had Dean Jackson say this, or maybe it was someone else, where conversations lead to conversions. So your goal as somebody who is maybe just starting out is to have a lot of conversations. And that you can have a lot of conversations through email, through cold outreach, through content, through whatever magnet that you use. But your goal is really to have conversations. So one thing I would do if I was starting out right now, didn't have a book, didn't have anything, I would look at my calendar and see how many conversations did I have with my ideal target market this week? And that may be where you do some outreach. Maybe you do some cold outreach or cold calls or whatever, 
and reach out to someone who's an ideal target market for you, or preferably where you do a combination of maybe inbound and outbound strategies as well. So you started the DBA list and then you were just trying your hardest to have as many conversations as possible per week. Is that correct? Was that your number one focus? Okay. So the flywheel was starting to turn faster and faster at this stage, right? I mean, the, the asset, as you said, that you built the book has been like the workhorse for you, definitely. So what was your next move? I know you get small moves, but if we had to generalize or maybe summarize a bit the next phase. My next big move was trying to get myself out of the delivery. Often when you start, you're the one who's doing the delivery. So I was doing all the coaching, all the consulting, all that sort of thing. And so one of the big problems you have as a human being is you have only 24 hours in a day and you want to sleep some of the time, you want to eat some of the time, you want to relax some of the time. And so really, okay, you can work 12, 16 hours a day or whatever, but if you're doing the delivery, if your marketing is working, which my marketing was working, I was very, very busy. My calendar was full of clients and delivery and calls and call after call. And my next big thing was trying to remove remove myself from the delivery of what we did, which was the coaching. So I hired initially an assistant to help me. Then I hired someone to help with the coaching and the delivery. And so now we have a team of coaches that does the delivery of what we do. And I actually really don't do much coaching or consulting at all. Every now and then I'll pop in on a call with a client, but really most of the time it's the delivery by my team. So that means that I need to can and clone and systemize what we do, right? Because it can't be all in my head. I need to, to create those systems where other people could deliver what I'm doing. How much revenue are you generating this year? Are you projecting to generate with the business? We're a private company. We don't disclose revenue publicly at the moment, but it's multiple millions. So between two and 100 millions. Uh, that would be pretty accurate. <laughs> uh, well done for, for being in that far. It's such an achievement. I hope you're not taking it for granted because it's definitely an achievement. If you had to pick maybe the biggest mistake you've done in that business so far, and maybe we're keeping it to the marketing realm, like a blunder or something that you really feel bad about, you still remember, what is it? So my biggest mistake was tolerating be players for too long. And it's a very hard thing to do when someone on your team is a good person and they're nice people and they try hard, but they underdeliver. And they're not doing anything wrong, right? Like it's easy to fire someone, like someone did something wrong or they're dishonest or whatever. That's an easy decision to fire that person. But to get rid of someone who's not doing anything wrong, they're doing okay, but we're at the cap of their capacity. That's a very, very hard thing to do. A lot of times we kept someone on who we really should have moved on a long time ago where they would have done better elsewhere. And by the way, I'll say this as well, whether someone is an A or B player or a C player is very context dependent. For example, someone could be a B player working for me, but be an A player somewhere else, right? So it's not that they're a bad person or their skills are bad or anything like that. It's just not a perfect fit. That's probably been my biggest mistake. And so what we've done now is we have a policy A players only. So our team are all killers, right? So everybody in there uh, is awesome. And so A players, are you pay more for A players, but they're usually a great deal. You might pay them double as much as you might pay a B player, but you'll get 10 times the result. How do you recognize an A player if you had to pick the one thing that you use as a sign, as a signal? 
we call it comes with batteries included. I used to think, hey, my job as a leader is to motivate people, motivate the team, right? Motivate them so that they feel inspired and everything like that. A player needs none of that. They come with batteries included. They're motivating me. They're like, come on, man, like we're kicking these goals. We're doing this. If you feel like you have to motivate your team, then they're probably not A players. Or when you feel like you're being pushed forward by your team, that's when you've got A players. I hope you're proud of what you've done. There's one part of your book that I love, and it's not the one you would expect. I really love the introduction where you mention and acknowledge the fact that you are standing on the shoulders of giants, right? So, Of course. Yes, but of course, not really. A lot of people are, we never say something like that. And, and I explain why. So you mentioned all those kind of direct marketing experts and the fact that we don't even remember necessarily how you got a certain piece of knowledge and the fact that maybe come from someone you forgot. And I love that because it's so true, so authentic. What do you say to people who are scared of doing that, not acknowledging it, but using other people's work for their own? Because it almost feels like stealing and they feel the need to do things themselves from scratch and create everything. What do you say to them? I think, as I say in the book, there's really nothing new under the sun. It's unless you maybe Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, and I don't think many of us listening or speaking here are ever going to be that. We're really going to take one idea and maybe combine it with another idea and create something new or even just a new spin on another idea. Like I'm currently writing the second book and I look at different content creators in different categories. So there's people who are, for example, curators, similar to you, like you get, you interview people, you curate content. Then there's people who are like the interviewer, like Oprah, like for example, Oprah built a huge, huge enterprise in a business. She never created one piece of content herself. She just interviews interesting people, asks them interesting questions, all of that sort of thing. Then there's the amateur on a journey. Someone who's like, look, I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to take you on my journey with you. That's interesting content too. So there's a lot of ways to create content that's not you're the genius guru who are inventing something brand new. There's many ways to bring content to the world that where you acknowledge other people's work or you remix other people's work. And that's totally fine, I think. There is a French chemist, Lavoisier, who lived, I think, in the 19th century. And in English, his famous saying is, nothing is created, everything is transformed. I'm forgetting half of it, but it's basically nothing is created from scratch. It's always using something else in nature or in our work. And it's important to think this way. When you allow yourself to steal, quote unquote, steal, it doesn't mean stealing verbatim everything and say it's you. But when you let yourself get inspired by others and acknowledge them and be happy with that, because that's what creativity is, then I think you unlock stuff in your brain. You can get a little bit more woo-woo or anything like that. But I think I've been studying how people invent and create. And it's so amazing. It's almost like there's a pre-written script because so many inventions invented simultaneously at the same time, like the light bulb was invented simultaneously by 15 different people at the same time. There's so many things that are just right now we're seeing what's going on with AI. Suddenly everybody's invented large language models and AI and all of this sort of thing. So we can think of it in a bit of even a bigger picture way as well, where maybe nothing is really created, where we're just plucking ideas from the air, really. That's very true. So I found the quote, nothing is lost, nothing is created, everything is transformed. So that's Antoine Lavoisier. That works so well for everything, nature, business, whatever. Well, Alan, you've been a pleasure. 
Thank you so much for spending the time, so much wisdom. I was so curious about the way you've been running that bad boy in, in the background. So very happy to get all of those details. Last question before I let you go. What are the top three resources you'd recommend my listeners today? Anything could be yours, could be someone else's. Obviously, I recommend my book, The One-Page Marketing Plan. You can get the one-page marketing plan canvas on successwise.com. My friend David Jennings, I'm not sure if you've interviewed him or not, but he's written a book called Systemology, really, really good book on business systems. He's a good friend and he's written a really, really good book. And like I said, right now I'm reading a book called Buy Back Your Time by Dan Martell, also really, really excellent information for entrepreneurs. Nice. Where can people connect with you and learn more from you? Yeah, successwise.com. And my book is very, very popular on audio. So audible.com, you can listen to an audio version of it. Well, once again, thank you so much. Luis, my pleasure. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, came through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.